This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 13th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Constitution was written as an anti-corruption document, and yet we appear to be surrounded by public corruption today. And though public corruption may serve as a silent killer of the economy, what to do about it isn't precisely clear. Frank Buckley is author of The Republic of Virtue, How We Tried to Ban Corruption, Failed, and What We Can Do About It. We spoke earlier this month. In your book, you characterize uh, the Constitution uh, in some ways as being presented as an anti-corruption document. What was the corruption that the founders were worried about, and how did that sales pitch go over? Well, it went over like gangbusters. The corruption they were worried about was very simple. It was British-style corruption, which is the corruption of an executive branch that can bribe members of parliament. Uh, they didn't want a king, and in particular, they didn't want an executive that could run the show by bribing everybody, or the reverse, the uh, congressman who could uh, appoint a president and get him to do his, their bidding. And, and uh, at every moment in the uh, convention, which nearly didn't produce a constitution, the thing that brought everybody around was the idea that, look, we fellows, we, we can do this and banish corruption. And the fellow who basically made that happen more than anyone was Governor Morris, very, very cleverly. Uh, and, and, and again, the, the, the convention nearly split apart, and he was the guy who brought everyone together. So you, argue, you also argue, and, and I admit to being fairly ignorant of the particular history on this, that the, the Constitution as it emerged um, was much more of a Governor Morris document than it was Madisonian. Yeah, no, uh, there, there is a Madisonian constitution. The Madisonian constitution is one in which the House of Representatives appoints the Senate, and the Senate, together with the House, appoints the president, and the federal government has a veto power over state legislation. And, and, and that's exactly what Madison got, except he got it in Canada. So if you call him the father of the constitution, just be careful which country you're talking about. It's, it, it wasn't Madison's constitution. Uh, you know, indeed, it's ironic that the two people who were really at the extremes, he and Hamilton, are somehow thought to be the guys who put it all together. When we talk about public corruption today, uh, when, when you say it, what do you, what do you mean? Well, it's the corruption of officials who trade in favors for government action. And, and to be clear, when I wrote the book, The Republic of Virtue, the title was meant to be ironic. In other words, it's not possible to have a perfect Republic of Virtue, right? And, and, and the people who've tried are people who, like Robespierre, found it necessary to cut off a few heads in the process. And, and so that doesn't work. So we're going to have to accept a, a certain amount of self-dealing and self-interest. But at the same time, there are things we can do. It's, it's just that what we've done up to now has been, I think, largely counterproductive. When, when you talk about public corruption, I feel like it is uh, not altogether a different animal, but it, it's substantially um, – there's substantially less overlap with uh, from your conception from what the average American might think of as corruption. I mean, Washington, D.C. is just considered to be a corrupt place. 
Well, yes, uh, we have assembled the largest network of patronage and influence of any country at any time in world history, and it's centered uh, with the lobbyists on K Street and the congressmen they deal with, and and that's basically what we should be doing to correct the problem. But instead, what we've done is we've concentrated on making victims of ordinary Americans in uh, their decisions to support a party, and you know, and and that simply makes it worse. It opens it up to partisan. Uh, um, litigation uh, or prosecutions against ordinary folks. Uh, I'm thinking of John Kerry when running for president. Uh, there was at least some concern that his wife's money would corrupt him. Well, you know, money is the uh, root of all evil, of course. We know this. But then the the root of all evil is deeply rooted. And, and what we don't want to do, I think, is get money out of politics. You know, for example, in the recent Alabama election, uh, Roy Moore, the Republican candidate, was outspent 10 to 1. I have no problems with that. Uh, Hillary's campaign outspent Trump's by 3 to 2. I have no problems with that. I don't see a problem with respect to money. I see a problem with the way in which the rules are structured so that the big fish can swim through as long as they have lawyers, but it's the small fry who get caught. And, and therefore, by the way, what I would do is simply eliminate all contribution limits. In some ways, the, the, then your answer to what a lot of people would call corruption is to just legalize the corruption. Well, legalize it for ordinary people, but I would concentrate on changing the law where there is the greatest concern of, you know, Washington, of D.C., and that's with respect to the K Street lobbyists. It's been said, for example, that... Congress is a farm team for K Street. Here's how it works. If you're a congressman, you're making 180000 a year, but you can up your salary considerably by a factor of 5 or 10 if after you leave office, you go to work as a lobbyist uh, or you know, government relations person, and about half of the congressmen who leave, you know, who are defeated or who leave Congress do exactly that. And here's the problem. The problem is if you expect to go to work for a, a, a lobbying firm and a member of that firm calls you up and says, you know, I'd like you to take a, a look at this little wrinkle here, and you're, you're talking to your future employer, then you're minded to, your answer is likely to be something like yes sir, no sir, three bags full. So I would at present – Lobbyists are not permitted to put money into the pockets directly or indirectly of a congressman, but what they can do is a lot of other stuff, very valuable, like uh, contributing to a congressional campaign, organizing meet and greets, uh, doing basic research on, on electoral issues, all of which would be tremendously useful for, for the congressman. Now, you know, lobbying can be very honorable. I mean, you're providing information. There's no reason why we should want to change that uh, or limit people from doing that, and constitutionally we can't. But at the same time, we don't have to say, well, in addition to that, you know, you can take them on golf junkets, right? That was that was banned after the Jack Abramoff scandal. Or what comes down to something similar, uh, contribute a like amount of money to their campaign. <clears throat> a friend of mine once described uh, lobbyists as intermediaries in the redress of grievances. Uh, they are exactly that. About 3% of the lobbyists, in fact, work for 
you know, kind of benign-sounding, you know, social institutions, NRA, NAACP, whatever. And the other 97% are basically industry representatives, and, and that's fine, too. But I don't see why they have to get the extra leverage of not only giving the good advice, but putting money in, in, in congressional campaign pockets. So uh, to what extent are you arguing that there's a cer certain categories or certain kinds of corruption that Americans should just be willing to tolerate? And to what extent are you making an argument that, well, we need to alter some fundamental institutions in order to root out certain problems that are just endemic to uh, the system we have today? Well, it's no secret that for many years I've argued that a parliamentary system is superior to a presidential one, both with respect to liberty and with respect also to corruption, and there's empirical evidence about that. But if we wanted to make that kind of change, I'm afraid we're about three, 230 years too late. So I'm not one of those academics who goes around saying, let's have this you know, amendment to the Constitution. I, I, I don't see that happening. But, but you know, lesser forms of, of uh, you know, mutual back-scratching or lobbying we're just going to put up with. I mean, a classic example would be Obamacare and all the sweetheart deals that were worked out. I mean, there was the Cornhusker kickback and the Florida Purchase, or Louisiana Purchase, rather. But the thing to remember about all of that was the senators in question were extracting uh, gifts for their state and not for themselves. And that's precisely what I think you have to put up with. And, and even if there's a, a personal element to it, I mean, um, there was litigation involving Governor Rod Blagojevich where Blo one thing Blagojevich did was he told the Obama folks when Obama was elected president and there was an empty Senate seat to fill that he'd put a, an Obama crony in the Senate in exchange for Blago going into the, the cabinet. And that didn't happen, and and that became before the the the, uh, the courts to see whether or not that was actionable corruption, and and the judge in question, Frank Easterbrook, reminded people that in 1952, apparently um, Earl Warren threw the California Republican delegation to Dwight Eisenhower in return for his seat on the Supreme Court, and any rule of law that makes a felon out of Earl Warren just ain't going to wash. So is that is that the kind of corruption that we should uh, be, in some sense, legalizing? Well, it's it's not legalizing. It's just there. The point is, you're you're not going to want to do anything by way of trying to prosecute people for that sort of thing. Um, you know, remember in the case of Obamacare, it was not a direct personal advantage or even an indirect one in terms of money into a campaign coffer. You know, it was rather a senator trying to benefit his constituents. And, and, you know, the same thing happens with respect to earmarks. And, and you know, indeed, that's built into the separation of powers. You don't find it in a parliamentary system, but there you go. I mean, if you want to make the change, we're 230 years too late on that one. And you, you know what the real problem here is? The real problem is if you start making these kinds of crimes, you're giving a tremendous amount of power to a really highly partisan group of prosecutors, right, uh, who would like nothing better than to make a name for themselves by, you know, taking a politician down uh, down to uh, the DOJ in a perp walk. I mean, we, that, that's a, that, that is a cure far worse than the disease. You know, because I, I can imagine um, Barack Obama and Rod Blagojevich at some point when this negotiation, such as it was, uh, was uh, underway, 
walking out of a room to a press conference and say, we have reached an agreement for the Senate seat uh, that has been vacated. And, and, and while and, and if, if we just maybe thought about it differently, people might not view that as corrupt. Well, yeah, by the way, you asked, uh, gee, do Americans think we're all that corrupt? And I have an answer for that. The answer is, gosh, uh, do you guys ever hear of Illinois, you know, or Louisiana? I mean, Illinois, the last, <laughs> I think four of the ex-governors are in prison at this point. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a joke. Um, but, you know, I, I'd like to mention one other thing. I mean, part of this is I'd like to get people focusing on, on what the real issue here is, which is the peddling of influence on K Street. And what I'd also like to do is direct attention from that which these campaign finance advocates really champion, which is sticking it to ordinary Americans. And, and here they start talking about things like dark money and the like. And I confess I'm all in favor of dark money. In other words, I don't think there should be any requirement that you disclose your identity. It's, it's a statutory matter. You know, it's not required if you could eliminate that. And if you made donations anonymous, well, you know, it may still be that the major donors would want to kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, let the candidate know where the money's coming from, although maybe not. I mean, much of that money is just ideological. But apart from that, I mean, I'm, I'm worried about the effect on ordinary Americans. So I'm worried about the poor Trump, you know, who who give, who doesn't have a lawyer at his side and, and, and gives money that he shouldn't be giving and finds himself uh, in jail, right? I mean, that, that has happened. And, and by the way, it's a bipartisan game. Both sides do it. And, and the message here is politics has to be so pure that we have to get ordinary Americans out of a system. Well, or that uh, this money would uh, render undue influence over the perfectly formed opinions of Americans across the country. Yeah, totally. And when you think about it, what we're talking about, by the way, is the guy who gives 20,000 bucks, not the guy who gives 2 million bucks, right? So the guy who gives 2 million bucks, he's got a lawyer, he knows how to do it, he can do it through a super PAC, for example. The guy who gives 20,000 bucks is the guy who can't possibly get any influence from what he's doing, it's too piddling. But nevertheless, for the eagle eyes of the Department of Justice of another party, that guy is a prime sucker just to be waiting to be taken to the cleaners. And that happens, and it's a corruption of politics. I guess my basic point is the left makes a big issue out about campaign finance but and money and politics, but the main corrective to corruption is competition, and competition needs money. Competition actually needs two things. It needs money, and it also needs the possibility of exit. So, you know, back when federalism was stronger, and even now, you can escape corruption, public corruption in Illinois or Louisiana by simply moving. And, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, where the Greyhound bus lines go or, you know, where the tickets are sold, the exit state is always the corrupt state, pretty much. So, you know, there's that answer, exit. But the other answer is, gosh, if it's a guy who's really, really corrupt, don't hamper his opponent by limiting the amount of money he can raise. And, and you know, again, it's bipartisan. I mean, think, think of Bernie Sanders. I mean, Sanders was taking on somebody who I think is a personification of corruption. And I think a lot of the anxiety or a lot of the reasons why Hillary Clinton lost was simply that she was perceived as corrupt. 
you have when you talk about uh, parliamentary systems, you obviously have nice things to say about them relative to what we've got here in the United States. One of the the points that uh, I believe you make is that in a parliamentary system, when something goes wrong, you know who did it. What what does that mean? Well, I'm I'm picking up a point first made by Woodrow Wilson. He called it irresponsibility, and the point is. When something doesn't happen, uh, think, for example, about government shutdowns. And what you get is a lot of finger pointing. But who's actually responsible? I mean, in, in the last one, which lasted, uh, sadly, only three days, right, it was the White House saying, no, no, it's Congress that's the problem. And the Dems in Congress saying, no, no, it's the White House. You know, and, and so what you don't get is one person clearly responsible, whereas in a parliamentary system, what you've got is the government. Right, and the government's uh, reputation is on the line if there's corruption and it doesn't do something, and and what that means, by the way, is that if there is a scandal in a parliamentary country and you follow it down, you're going to find it's totally trivial by American standards. I mean, just you know, like a nothing issue, but yet governments fall on these these issues in the parliamentary system. I want to talk about a couple more things. Uh, one is impeachment, and the other is the administrative state. Mm-hmm. Um, what has happened to impeachment? Well, what happened to impeachment is really very simple. Um, you know, I said Governor Morris is the, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a Morris constitution, basically. And what Morris did very cleverly right at the end of the convention is he snuck something in. What he snuck in was that for impeachment, it would take two-thirds of the Senate rather than simply a majority. Up to then, it had been simply a majority. And you know what? It was so late in the day, nobody ever noticed that in the convention. It just sort of, sort of sailed through. But then the question is, how often has it happened since 1787 that we've had the possibility of impeachment where the presidents of one power, the House is in the other party's control, and two-thirds of a Senate is in the other party's control? And it's happened only once, and that was Andrew Johnson, if he counts as a, as a Democrat. And you know, and even then they couldn't impeach me. I mean, you know, whereas, you know, my argument is I'd like to see people impeached all the time, right, for, you know, for high crimes and misdemeanors or, you know, just maladministration or just for the fun of the thing. Which, I mean, impeachment, when you say high crimes and misdemeanors, and Gene Healy, who you know, uh, says tells me that that has a, just a fundamentally different meaning than what the public thinks it means today. Yeah, well, actually, I don't think it means a darn thing in the sense that there's no appeal from a decision to impeach and remove. Uh, therefore, it could be whatever you want, right? It's just, uh, you know, it, it, it has kind of a hortatory effect, but it's not something that really is legally binding in any particular way. It's great for arguing over. Uh, so on the administrative state, we have vast uh, agencies that are nominally under the control of the executive, but uh, are they? Uh, well, they are. And, you know, I, I, look, this is a separate issue, but I think there's a lot of bloody stupidity on the rule of law question. And here's the point. Every first world country has exactly the same kind of problem. It was first identified by Lord Heward in England in 1929. And, you know, it's it's a function of modernity of two things, of the way in which life has become more complicated and government has gotten bigger. And you put those two together and you've got, on the one hand, regulators who have all the expertise and congressmen who are dumb bunnies, with the result that congressmen, Congress, uh, you know, regularly just, you know, blesses whatever the regulators come up with. 
Um, and now we're hearing something about how Trump is cutting back on regulations, and, and the answer is, don't you believe it? There is really no particular way out of it short of something vastly more drastic than anyone has talked about, right? Litigation is not going to do it, except at, at the margins. Um, you can't cut regulations without the revocation going through notice and common procedure, which really slows everything down. So it would take a massive kind of intervention by Congress to just take a chopping block to a huge swath of regulations before you got really any kind of appreciable change. But you know what? You know what I think the problem is? I think, you know, it's, it's not that the government per se is big or that we're in an age of modernity with a lot of technical expertise. America is just too darn big. It's a function of size. Smaller countries of smaller regulatory states, because I think there are economies of scale in the production of, of regulations. That's that's why the problem is worse here, and that's also why Brexit for the Brits was a form of deregulation. You know, yeah, you you talk about this uh, regulatory rollback that uh, at least was promised by uh, the incoming Trump administration, and and certainly uh, cheerleaded by the people like Steve Bannon and and probably a lot of uh, libertarians as well. But there's not much evidence that it has occurred. No, no, and there's not much evidence. There's not much reason to think that it it would be able to occur. You know, my, my own solution was one adopted 1,600 years ago by Justinian, which is appoint a regulatory reform commission and bypass the existing Administrative Review Act and just cut them down. I mean, give it to a bunch of a panel of experts and, and, and cut them all down. Napoleon did exactly the same thing, basically. But short of something like that, which just completely bypasses all the barriers to change that are built into the system, uh, not much will be done except at the edges. You know, it's, 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 the Administrative Procedure Act was supposed to be something that would prevent bad stuff from happening, but the problem is it also doesn't have much of a reverse gear, so you can't, it's real hard to undo the bad stuff that's done. Frank Buckley is author of The Republic of Virtue, How We Tried to Ban Corruption, Failed, and What We Can Do About It. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or complaints about the Cato Daily Podcast, I do want to hear them. You can email me at cbrown at cato.org or at us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.